It's Wednesday, July 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Funds, Tim Hansen. Thanks for being here. It is my pleasure. <laughs> We're going to talk about Alibaba's IPO. We're going to talk about the trip you just took, but let's start with... I'm sure everyone's fired up to hear about my... <laughs> I, you know what? I'm fired up to hear about it. But, um, but, but let's start uh, on a more serious note with the big story of the day in the stock market, and that is uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, who has sent a memo to shareholders and employees sharing the news that he's been diagnosed with throat cancer. It is, by all accounts and all reports, considered curable. He is undergoing radiation and chemotherapy treatments over the next eight weeks. He expects to make a full recovery. We went through something similar like this a couple of years ago with Warren Buffett. And yet, I don't know about you, when I saw this, it's still it's still jarring. And maybe it's just because it's cancer, but it's still jarring, even though it's Considered curable and 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 all this sort of thing. Um, I'm curious though, because shares are down slightly today, down about one and a half percent the last time I checked. Jamie Dimon's been CEO for I think about eight years, eight and a half years. By all accounts, widely respected, very effective. But this is one of those stories, Tim, where all of a sudden, and I don't own shares of J.P. Morgan, but. I think people who own shares, when they see this news about Jamie Dimon, I'm not surprised that the stock is selling off a little bit because he's 58 years old. And whether this takes a turn for the worse or whether he just decides, you know what, I'm going to retire sooner than later, um, I think Jamie Dimon not being in the CEO office makes that a weaker company. Yeah. Well, first, you know, best wishes to him. Absolutely. For a, for a, for a speedy recovery. Um, what what this highlights is something that's been reported about J.P. Morgan for a few years now, which is that of all, uh, Jamie Dimon is re- repeatedly good at many things. One of the things he has not been good at, reportedly, is succession planning. Um, he has not, as far as as I've been, as as far as I've read or heard, um, done a good job of cultivating. Talent within the company to to rival him and give him other opinions. Um, you know, going back to the the London Whale fiasco, um, he, they lost a top manager there who, by all accounts, wasn't you know even doing that good a job of, of overseeing her her department. And you know, there's been generally speaking, uh, people people more people leaving J.P. Morgan than than staying and. Um, you know, again, I think we all hope anybody diagnosed with cancer get gets better. But you know, J.P. Morgan is very much a cult of Jamie Dimon at this point, and he's kept it that way for better or for worse. And uh, but you know, when we analyze companies, and when I meet CEOs, one of the first things you ask, even if they're a younger person, is you know, what are you doing to 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 cultivate talent? You know, do you promote from within? You know, are you building the next generation of leaders? What programs do you have in place to do that? And because continuity is is hugely important if you're investing for the long term. And at JP Morgan, you know, that continuity um, isn't, you know, at least investors at today don't don't seem to think it's there. Is that hard to do? Obviously, if you're sitting down with a CEO or, or any sort of executive team, the position you're in, you're able to do that with with some companies. But for the average investor, how, how do you sort of suss out how deep the bench is Behind the CEO and what sort of succession plan they have in place, because I I think it's the sort of thing that, for the most part, investors don't 
really think about that unless the CEO's age is such. Like when Jim Senegal came here, the longtime CEO at Costco, when he was here, I think in 2009, that was one of the questions I asked him about. But I asked him about it because he was getting on in years. But but for well, you have to. I mean, you have to start planning for succession well before you know you need it, right? Because. Um you know, Warren Buffett, for example, reportedly has an envelope with a name in it, but the name has changed many times over the years, and that's because circumstances change, people develop. I mean, you've got to have your plan. And, you know, emergencies happen. That's one reason why you always need to be doing it. But the other reason to be doing that is that good succession planning does take time. People develop over time, and a new candidate might emerge or, or what have you. You know, as for how people can tell if their companies are good at it, you know, companies that are good at it tell you. Very readily, you know, I mean, or they do things that make it apparent that they are thinking about this actively. Um, you know, take Whole Foods, for example. Uh, John Mackey, um, you know, promoted uh, Walter Robb to be the co-CEO with him. Um, you know, you look at who's on the bench behind him, AC Gallo, others, they've been there forever. Um, and, and they've, and generally speaking, all the people on the management team have risen up through the ranks at Whole Foods. To me, if you see a pattern of promotion, and you see uh, a CEO who is actively talking about succession planning and talking about who, you know, what criteria he's looking for and the person who's going to succeed him. If he promotes a co-CEO, um, you know, that, that to me, it's easy to, it's easy to see because they talk about it. And companies that aren't doing it just ignore it. So if you see nothing about it, that's generally a sign they're not doing it. I mean, Procter & Gamble, what they brought back Laffley last year, um, and his only job was to, to figure out who, who was going to succeed him? Because the the guy who had been before him had completely fallen down on that on that front. And Procter and Gamble for years had prided itself on being an organization that was built around um, talent development. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, diapers, for example, are are a commodity product, right? But the strategy of marketing, selling diapers, um, treating your suppliers well—those are things you learn within a corporate culture, and and that's the importance of succession planning. Diapers are a commodity product, but I always tell colleagues of ours who are about to become parents for the first time, one of my pieces of advice is just buy the Pampers. They're the best. Really? Oh, yeah. We we are pretty loyal to the uh, the Kirkland brand over at the Costco. Oh, that, so, the, the, yeah, the one thing I'll say is never not being a Costco member, never tried those. So, if, if people, and there are people who say those are really good, that's fine. I, but, think, I think they are the Pampers. Okay. I think, I think that's true. I think they're manufactured and they're just off-labeled. It's one of the major brands, I think. Is the Kirkland brand, but the Kirkland brand diapers are very solid. Okay. Although interesting, interesting side note as we segue potentially into a discussion of my recent family vacation. Um, <laughs> I like where this is going. We went, we flew to to Minnesota, and in order to dodge all of the check bag fees and not have to wait around the baggage carousel with the kids, we packed light. Um, and so one thing that we didn't pack was diapers because you can just buy them as soon as you got off the plane. They're everywhere. They're commodity product. And so we um, flew to Minnesota, got off the plane, and obviously it's Minnesota. First thing you see is a Target. So, um, you know, risking th- that our credit card number would be stolen, we shopped there <laughs> and uh, bought the Target, the Target diapers. Now, we, my daughter wore them all week. We got home, and we still had some Target diapers left over that we'd thrown, you know, a few to take on the plane. So we got home, and, and we went to change her and put on a Kirkland diaper. She said, no. I want that one. And point out the Target diaper. I don't know where that ha- how that happened or wow. what the difference was. Brand but, loyalty. But, well, they're both brand. They're both. They're both. You know, brand. Le- I, I, who knows? But I thought that was kind of quirky that my daughter ex- had an expressed preference for which <laughs> diapers she was going to wear. 
uh, from diapers to IPOs. We've had about 150 IPOs so far this year, uh, but the biggest is still to come, and that's Alibaba's. Alibaba is expected to raise about somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 billion, which would make it one of the largest IPOs ever. And yet, there was a survey out today of more than 300 institutional investors. While they broadly expressed optimism about Alibaba's business model, and for those who don't know, this is the Chinese e-commerce giant, fewer than half of these institutional investors surveyed said that they plan to buy shares. And breaking it down further, fund managers who have not yet invested in Chinese stocks appear to be the least likely to buy Alibaba. That makes sense to me. I'm a little surprised, though, by the headline of this survey, which is overwhelmingly optimistic about Alibaba's business model. Even more overwhelmingly, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% expect shares to go up in the first month. But were you surprised by that disconnect that, that about half of them? I mean, because again, these are not individual investors who we frequently say stay out of IPOs. These are institutional investors. Well, what's funny is that if you're not going to buy shares, the stock can't go up. <laughs> so apparently they're not going to do it, but they think everybody else is going right. to do it. Um, it's it's a weird headline. I you know I, I don't I don't necessarily fault anyone for not wanting to buy in at the Alibaba IPO. I mean, we're certainly not going to do it. Um, you know, not only do we, as always, like to see companies operate for a few years as a public company before we can get 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 a real good understanding of how they're going to behave as a public company and how they're going to think about allocating capital and rewarding shareholders. You know, but Alibaba has a bit of a checkered history um, in terms of corporate governance. Relating to you know whether it was uh, the Alipay thing where they moved the Alipay asset out of Alibaba Group, much to the chagrin of Yahoo, um, you know whether it's the fact that as it appears they were artificially holding down their profitability while they were negotiating with Yahoo to buy back some of the Yahoo shares, and then all of a sudden as they go to IPO, you know the last two years have been obscenely profitable, um, you know thinking about succession planning, Jack Ma that. It seems to be taking the company public, but doesn't seem to be that fired up about running Alibaba for a much longer period of time. Um, and he's, you know, he's a, he's he's the visionary at the top of that organization. So I think that's an outstanding question there. So I'm not surprised to see people express some skepticism um, about the company. I think ultimately the IPO is going to be successful because, you know, people somewhere. I mean, whether you know, ultimately there's a lot of money also floating around in Hong Kong, which would love, I think, and knows the Alibaba knows Alibaba very well and would, would be able to get over some of those things. Um, to prop up uh, uh, the IPO, but uh, you know, I think U.S. institutions being skeptical about China—that's that, nothing new after all of the all of the financial uh, questions that have been coming out of that 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 economy. Valuation aside, because I know that price matters when you're looking at a stock. Is there anything in particular that you or anyone at Motley Fool Funds is going to be watching? When it comes to Alibaba, or is it just simply a matter of time? We just want to see how the company looks after two quarters under their belt or a full year. I'm just yeah. I mean, I think give them a year as a public company, um, see what they do, see how they report um, results. You know, a lot of companies, I think, uh, in order to have a successful IPO, you know, there are ways to sort of front and backload your business, right? And so you you can pump a lot of business into those numbers right before you IPO, and then obviously. It's going to be a little bit weaker after you come out. Um, easier for some some companies to do than than others. Um, 
you know, watch them for a year, see what they do. You know, I think with the big Chinese internet companies, there are questions around how their corporate structures are um, built to protect foreign investors, and so you needed you want to demand a high rate of return. So I think price price and valuation matter matter a lot. Um, for those, you know, we have shares of Baidu, for example. And generally speaking, we wait for people to panic about it, and then and then that's when historically we've gone in and bought them. Um, there's no reason to buy when everybody's all fired up about China because China, people need to remember it's large. It's a large economy, but it's still an emerging economy. It's got a lot of issues, structural issues. Um, there are going to be ups and downs, and so I think you know put put company the you know the big Chinese internet companies Baidu, Tencent, and Alibaba, all of which are ostensibly based on their financials, ostensibly well run and profitable. Um, I think all three deserve a place on your watch list. And um, when people inevitably panic about China, that's when you and go they in will. and get it. And they will. That's when you should you should go back and, and, and redo your work and see if then is the opportunity to do it. You know, I think buying, you know, com- companies like to come public to raise the most amount of money possible. And so they inevitably do it in, in more bullish markets, not bearish markets. And so um, you can expect that the price will probably be will probably reflect optimism about the stock rather than pessimism. You recently went, as you mentioned, uh, to South Dakota. I think we talked about it uh, maybe the last time you were here. Or? I think on Burger, on burger Day. Yeah. On National Burger Day. Did you get to that burger place? We went to Nick's, Nick's. in Brookings. I haven't been to Brookings in, in, in 20 years. Brookings has really, it's a nice little town. Um, nice Main Street. Right across from Nick's, you could get craft cocktails. So that revolution has. <laughs> Spread everywhere now. Nice. Um, yeah, Nick's was fabulous. You know, Nick's does a smaller hamburger, like more like a slider, but you can get a double, which is two patties on the on the bun. And uh, that I had that excellent. I had mine with um, ketchup and pickles. And my son, I mean, they're perfect size for kids. My son is like a, it's like a one of those big two fisted hamburgers for kids. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so my son had a, had a good time eating and got a chocolate milk. It was it was a lovely day. Were there any? I know it was not a business trip, but I also know you, and business is never far from your mind. Were Were there any takeaways on your trip, uh, whether it's about investing, about a business in particular, leaving aside the whole um, the fact that you're now going to be spending more money at Target? Yeah, uh, <laughs> the you know uh, uh, the 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 most interesting thing I learned about from a business perspective is we had the opportunity to go visit a cattle ranch. Which was a, 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 a very nice gentleman who's a friend of my parents, and um, took the kids out there, and so they had a blast because they got to drive a tractor, and you know these huge John Deere, two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollar tractor. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, it was fascinating. They're putting a three hundred thousand dollar tractor in the hands of your son. Well, there's nothing to hit. I mean, you're just <laughs> out in the middle of a field. That's true. That's true. <laughs> the things practically drive themselves. He's, he's the not GPS on the Beltway. With no, this right, thing. right. Um, but it, I mean, it was fascinating. You know, you know people think about. You know, people. Th- I don't think people um, realize how much how much business savvy, or at least people who don't who don't live in farming communities realize how much business savvy goes into running um, a large scale farm. So, I mean, on the day that we visited, uh, Myron Myron had been he'd been at the auction and he was buying uh, cattle that weigh about a thousand pounds, and then basically his business model is that he beefs them up to um, about fifteen hundred pounds and then sells them to I think his biggest buyer, he said, were the people who do Omaha Omaha steaks. But he was saying, so he had built where we had gone out to visit the the beef barn, and the beef barn cost him quite a bit to 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 build. Um, it's a long building with a um, concrete floor and uh, you know a roof on it, but basically you know it keeps the cattle 
warmer. Um, it, it allows them to eat more regularly, so they, they actually fatten up faster. So he was just saying, you know, if I've shaved, you know, I'm no longer losing food because they're not walking on their food. It's all, you know, and they're eating more of it faster. And so instead of, you know, basically over time, I'm saving 30 days on the process of giving them up to their selling weight, which when you do the math, the payback period on the beef barn was like a year and a half. It's like, I should have 10 of these. I don't know why I don't yet. But wow. I mean, the math that, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, and I'm sure there are people who know this. This is, this is not anything new, but the, um, the amount of um, foresight and, and strategy that you need to put into managing your inventories on a farm and whatnot is, is, is quite impressive. Interesting. You can always email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, just before we wrap up, I got an email uh, from Bensie Abraham in Arizona um, referring, I think, to our podcast yesterday uh, with Bill Barker. He said, you were mentioning a great place for cupcakes, and there's a national brand called Sprinkles Cupcakes, which are just incredible. I never heard of it until I moved to Arizona, and they're very good. There's one in D.C. And speaking of dessert, the best candy bar in America is the Nestle Girl Scout Cookie Candy Bars. They're available at CBS. Thin Mint and Peanut Butter Cream are also solid. Have a great Fourth of July. That was Betsy? Uh, Bensy, B-E-N-C-Y. Bensy, Bensy in Arizona. Uh, that was very. That, uh, yeah. that's a lot of good advice. Good, good info. Um, and uh, and speaking of the Fourth of July, it will be a short week for us uh, because the market closes early tomorrow. So this is this is our last market foolery of the week. Do you have plans for the Fourth? Um, I think we're just going to go out and watch the fireworks from the from the Wilson Bridge. I think Ben is old enough this year to finally step and do it. Nice. So we're going to do that. I think that's otherwise pretty quiet. We've got a we got a hectic travel schedule this 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 summer. I'm off to Oregon in two weeks, and then uh, then we're then we're off to to Germany and Eastern Europe for a couple of weeks for work. Is Oregon for work as well? Yeah, yeah. Although I think it's going to be hard to um, not have fun. Also, Portland looks like I- a nice town. <laughs> And then I have to drive out to Bend, which looks like a lovely drive past Mount Hood. Should be, I think I might stop, maybe go for a run or something. They seem to have a lot of nature out there in the Oregon. <laughs> there is a lot of nature in Oregon. <laughs> and while I've never been to Portland, I do hear very good things about the, the fun factor, the culture factor, all that sort of thing. Well, and our, our, our foolish colleague Tracy Dahl is from that area and will actually be there at the same time. So she promised to show me a good uh, dinner spot. So that should be nice. All right. Well, have a good fourth. Thanks Thank for you, being sir. here. Thank you, sir. You too. Happy Fourth of July. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. Have a great Independence Day. We'll see you on Monday. 